What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today we are talking with Roy Grinker about his book, Nobody's Normal. And it's all about mental illness and the stigma around mental illness and what we could do to help destigmatize this topic so we can help more people and have better conversations. But real quick, before we get started, a couple things, couple things. So it is National Recovery Month. And if you're listening to this episode during the weekend that it was launched, I have put both of my books about addiction, addiction recovery. Both of those books are totally free right now through the weekend. I think that it ends on Monday, but uh, my first book is Hope, and it's my personal story about how I overcame addiction, depression, and anxiety. And the second book is called Caught in the Crossfire. So it's for anyone who has a loved one struggling with addiction, because a lot of people don't know what to do. Like more than I've had people come to me asking me to help them with their addiction, I have 10 times more loved ones asking me. So I wrote this uh, short little book. So if you're looking for ways to help someone you know, like mainly my goal with that book, Caught in the Crossfire, was how do you keep your mental health straight when someone you know is struggling with an addiction? So both of those books are totally free through the weekend. Uh, it ends Monday. I've posted on my social medias. So make sure you're following me at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter. You'll find the links to those books. Second, uh, Roy and I, obviously, we're talking about mental illness and all of that. And one of the things is around this stigma is a lot of people don't get help. They don't get help because they're worried about the stigma. They want to do it on their own. And Roy and I, we talk a lot about how we live in this kind of individualist society where, especially here in the United States, it's like, hey, toughen up. You got this on your own. And that couldn't be further from the truth. We are wired for connection and we often need to ask for help. So the the other thing is down in the description of this episode, as well as every single episode, there's an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. And therapy is a huge, huge, huge part of my life. I didn't start it until, you know, uh, years into my sobriety. But uh, I really got into it uh, in 2019 when I was going through a lot of stuff with being canceled and, you know, I was borderline kind of relapse and all sorts of stuff and better help online therapy. is actually the service that I've used. So therapy can be expensive. I know a lot of people don't have health insurance, but better help. Not only is it affordable, but you can do it from the comfort of your own home. So yeah, check it out. They even have a sliding scale if you don't make that much money. And like I said, I, I would not use this link if it wasn't a program that I personally use or could vouch for. And I know a lot of people who have used BetterHelp as well. So if you're interested, check out that affiliate link. There's nothing wrong with getting some help. But yeah, um, Roy wrote this book, Nobody's Normal. It's one of my favorite books. It's about the stigma, how different countries address mental illness. And it's really interesting talking with him about, you know, how mental illness is seen around the world because it's really a cultural thing, right? So he you know, has a background not only in psychology or psychiatry, but also anthropology. So he's a really interesting dude. I love this book. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. So also down in the description, make sure you are following Roy over on Twitter. And I have also linked his book, Nobody's Normal. All right. So yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. Make sure you check out the description, not only for Roy's stuff, but you know, like I said, uh, the, the books are free throughout the weekend and there's an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. And if you're new, 
make sure you're following the podcast so you don't miss any episodes, all right? Anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Roy Grinker about his new book, Nobody's Normal. Hello, Roy. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I am great. Super excited to chat with you. As as soon as I saw the title of your book and what it was it was about, I'm like, I I need this. So your your new book is called Nobody's Normal. So can you, for those who are unfamiliar with you, can you give us a little bit of your background? And I always love to know, like. What inspired you to sit down and write this book? Yeah, you know, I'm an anthropologist, uh, but I'm also a dad of a <laughs> wonderful uh, young woman um, who's autistic. Um, and I'm also uh, the legacy or the uh, descendant of several generations of psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. And so it sort of put me these three different um, uh, aspects of my my history put me in a particular position to take a critical view mm. of psychiatry, psychoanalysis, and also disability and developmental uh, disorders. You know, so often people think that that anthropologists just study other cultures and, you know, tell us about the hunter-gatherers living in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But, yeah. And we do that, right? But that's only half of it. The other half is to come home to ourselves. Mm. Having been detached, having been removed, we see ourselves in a new light. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you go, you know, to a European country and you immediately notice the streets are so small and narrow and the cars are so small. And when you come back to the United States, you're, you say, oh my God, things are so huge here. Yeah. You've noticed that size in the United States had you not been removed from it. And so anthropology gives us a way to see our own world in a new light. And I wanted to do that with mental health care, mm. psychiatry as well. Uh, not to criticize it as bad, but to understand how it developed and how it developed in a way that made mental illnesses something people needed to be ashamed of or feel secretive about. Yeah. Um, I mean, if there's one thing that really characterizes the the, the, the terrible suffering of mental illnesses is that it's a double illness. Mm. It's the, the, the illness itself and then the negative value and the judgment and the secrecy and shame that society puts on it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's one of the reasons I, I really enjoyed the book and, and just that, uh, anthropology angle too. Like I was interested because, uh, I don't know, it just, being involved in just like the mental health discussion over recent years. I haven't even thought about these other places. I just figure like mental illness is mental illness is mental yeah. illness. But uh, so in comparison to the United States, I know you chat a little bit about this in your book and some what other countries do, but do you see the stigma being worse in America compared to other places? Like, for example, I was, we might dedicate a whole section right now to this, but you talk about like the schizophrenia festival in Japan. And like, when I read that part, I was like, 
that's awesome, right? But I know not every place is doing stuff like that. So maybe it'll help the listeners uh, without giving away too much of what they do. But like, like, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what this festival is like? And are there any other countries that are kind of just normalizing it and like not looking at it as this, this kind of negative thing? Well, you find it, that there are pockets of countries mm. throughout the world that are appreciating that uh, schizophrenia, that even the word itself has actually done a lot of harm. Mm. Uh, that uh, a fairly large percent of the human population does hear voices. Um, and that uh, hearing voices or, or having hallucinations or delusions can be the result of a whole you know, array of different things and that we all exist on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. But what's happened in some places like in Japan is that there have been pockets of people who resisted seeing uh, schizophrenia as just a disease. And in this very remote area that the anthropologist Karen Nakamura studied, um, there's a community of people who um, used to be in the hospital, used to be in institutions, but they, they formed a, a community where they, they um, produce uh, goods, um, they uh, harvest seaweed, and mm -hmm. uh, they do all sorts of things. But once a year, they also have, these are all people who had, had diagnoses of schizophrenia. And once a year, they, all, they have this sort of expo, and they invite people to come. And they sell their products, but they also give speeches and they, they perform plays and they talk about what their experiences are like uh, as people who have struggled with very serious mental illness mm -hmm. and how they have persevered. And that perseverance is inspiring to a lot of people who will look and say, oh, well, so I can see that schizophrenia is not a death sentence. Schizophrenia is not a life sentence to some yeah. that that actually the, the most important factor in the outcomes of serious mental illnesses isn't whether you get medicines or whether you get this or that kind of therapy, but it's social supports. And they've come wow. together to support each other. And they actually give an award to the best delusion or hallucination. I know. And, I love that. <laughs> and the best delusion or hallucination is that delusion or hallucination that contributed to the social solidarity of that community. So if somebody had a crisis, like one man I write about who said that he was going off to a spaceship in the middle of the uh, of a forest and which could be dangerous. The community gathered around to protect him and to treat him very kindly so that he didn't put himself in danger. And that ended up being a very positive delusion because it brought people together, you know, at a time where they could have stigmatized him or they could have a uh, call on him to be institutionalized or called the police or done mm -hmm. something else. And so it's very, very positive. And I think that this is in microcosm, what we are seeing all over the world now, uh, increasingly, where, uh, for, for example, autism is not seen as mm -hmm. something that is always terrible, yeah. right? That depression is something that is within the realm of, of normal, that mental illnesses in general are in the realm of what is going to happen to the vast majority of us at some point in our lives. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel that that was such a, a turning point for me as I just kind of reflected and realizing that 
perspective is so powerful, right? Like, is there's just that there's that old parable, right? Where it's like, uh, where there's like the farmer. I'm gonna screw it up. I always screw it up. But like, he he's like a farmer, and then like his son gets hit by a horse, and they're like, oh, that's bad luck, right? But then the son like doesn't have to go to war, so they're like, oh, that's good luck, right? And it's just kind of like looking at these situations. But anyways, no, but that's. I don't. I don't mean to stop. Oh question. no, go ahead. But it's just that, like, sometimes these there are these little things, like like that. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to like always, you know, have this massive infrastructural change in society. And to go back to Japan, when they changed the name um, schizophrenia from a Japanese phrase translation of schizophrenia that literally meant a mind torn asunder mm. to a word that meant something much more mild, like integration disorder. Yeah. All of a sudden you saw increases in diagnoses and people getting treatment and people doing better. Yeah. Right? Like one word. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild because it's, you know, I try to talk to people like, I, I feel sometimes like we'll talk about, you know, the capitalist issues we face, but like there's a lot of individualism in the United States, but like there's this balance too, because I had to change my perspective about my addiction. Like, for example, when I, one of the hardest parts for me and many other people was to say, I'm an addict. There's something with me where I cannot drink or use drugs like a normal person, right? And I live in Las Vegas, Roy. So it was hard for me to be like, hey, something else happens to me. But when I came to terms with it, I finally got sober. I'm like, oh, this isn't a bad thing, right? Like uh, I, I started realizing like the positive aspects of, you know, my addiction while being sober, you know, I have my son back in my life, I work, I get to do stuff like this, you know, but, uh, for example, like I get really excited about things, right? Like I get that kind of increased like dopamine or that pleasure, right? Uh, I, I have this work ethic, like something I realized, you know, this is, you know, a weird thing that mostly only other addicts get, but like, I realized like, man, if I would go to those lengths to like find drugs or get alcohol. Imagine if I shifted that work ethic towards something else. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there were these positive aspects I could pull from it, but same thing with like anxiety. Like for example, right now in the United States, how many people aren't vaccinated? How many people aren't wearing masks, right? Like they need a little bit more anxiety in their lives. So, so there, there's, it's, it's absolutely necessary. <laughs> you don't have some anxiety. You're going to get hit by a car very quickly. Yeah, exactly. So, so okay. I, it, it's, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, it, it needs a, a larger conversation, but have you seen any, any shifts? Are there any places? Cause like you said, you come back to the United States, you kind of look around. Have you noticed any locations or areas of the United States where people are kind of changing how we're talking about mental health issues, mental illness, and not framing it as like this, this terrible curse or death sentence. Well, it's interesting that you mention um, substance abuse, right? Because uh, I would, Aver, that I, I would, I would say that the, the two most stigmatized conditions have been substance abuse and schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. uh, both of which have as characteristics uh, issues around impulse and impulse control. And so in a society that is, has a long history of capitalism and individualism, where we think that individuals should be in control, control of everything that they do and totally responsible for anything and accountable for anything they do, we have criticized certain kinds of conditions, including um, serious mental illnesses, when 
they suggest to us a lack of individual self-control and a lack of individual accountability. And so um, an addictive, an addiction disorder uh, or something where somebody doesn't know what they're doing, like a psychotic disorder, um, you know, that can be incredibly damaging because the individual is held responsible. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that we've also noticed in regarding substance abuse is that um, addiction is becoming considered something that isn't just the result of an individual. It's a result of a society. Mm -hmm. Society that uh, involved big pharmaceutical companies producing drugs to and and to hawk these drugs and to use these drugs in ways that were not safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And also that sometimes addictions have a genetic component. It's not your fault that you are genetically predisposed to that any more than somebody's, it's somebody's fault that they're predisposed to breast cancer Mm -hmm. genetically. Um, And so we are getting a much more nuanced view of how to think about these conditions and where, where stigma really increases is when we hold the individual responsible. Mm. Stigma decreases when we think about society as bearing some responsibility. And I think that we're doing that with um, addictions for sure. Um, Now, you asked about conditions that are less stigmatizing. Uh, I think it's across the board. Uh, Mm. Most things are less stigmatizing. Uh, Students now openly talk about having ADHD in my classes. People with autism are right out there in the open. I mean, even Greta Thunberg, autism is her superpower. Um, People within this COVID pandemic uh, feel less and less ashamed to say that they have an anxiety disorder or are depressed. Mm -hmm. How many people have not suffered emotionally during this pandemic? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's... It's yeah, I, I, that's one thing that, you know, so many of us can can connect on. There's been more conversations about about, you know, just social connection and isolating. And, you know, uh, it, it kind of it kind of dwindled down a little bit after, you know, the whole start of the pandemic. But there was a lot of people coming out and, you know, saying like, hey, call people, connect with people. And, you know, they were kind of like really shining a light on these stories. So. Right. So, yeah, but uh, but it's yeah, it's really complicated. So if you take autism, for example, there are some people who've actually done better um, in the pandemic. Um, hmm. their well, like kids that were so anxious at school, always having to deal with bullying and trying to read mm. things that were difficult for them. And they were so emotionally exhausted after school. They couldn't, you know, just so glad to be home. They could just sit and all they could do is sit in front of a computer and play games. Uh, now, uh, there are some people who are finding that uh, it is easier to be social on Zoom for them because every, it's awkward for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Normalize level playing field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Zoom kind of awkward, okay. normalizes social awkwardness, but they also aren't dealing with those stresses of a, of a, you know, a middle school or a high school. That can be incredibly stressful. But then on the other side, there are other people who didn't do well. They weren't, they didn't have their special education classes um, with the care that they had before. They'd mm-hmm. ne- they perhaps didn't have some of the therapies, speech therapy, occupational therapy, whatever it might've been that they had had. And um, so there are, are people who, who did well and there's some people who did not. And it's impossible to predict uh, which uh, is you know going to do well and which is not. But, uh, but it's, it's, it's just a... I'm just trying to say it's complicated. Yeah. And what we're seeing with, with COVID 
is a kind of normalization of stress. Mm-hmm. But we just don't know who's going to be stressed out and who's not. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I, I wanted to go back to something that, that you touched on that, you know, we're kind of understanding, you know, there's genetic components and all that. Like one, one book, a uh, quick little story. When I was about two years sober uh, and getting back in my life, I moved back to Vegas. I was back in my son's life. I started working again after a whole year, just focusing on my sobriety. I started getting these thoughts because everybody in my office was like, you know, going out to the bar after work. And I'm like, oh, I can't, you know, whatever. But I was, I started doing this whole like, why me? Why me? Why do I, not only addiction, but why do I struggle with depression? Why do I struggle with anxiety? Anyways, I picked up, uh, this is when I first like really got into all these books was I picked up clean from David chef and he kind of goes through and talks about, you know, he did extensive research on addiction and re- and studies and all that. Uh, he's the author of that book, beautiful boy that they turned into yes. a movie for those mm-hmm. who don't know. But anyways, when I read it, I started learning about the genetic component. So, you know, for example, my mom was an alcoholic until I was 20 years old. I have other family members, like her, her, uh, uh, her siblings struggle with substance abuse disorders, right? Mental health issues running to my family and all this. So I'm like, oh, oh, there's a genetic component to this. And I started to cut myself some slack, right? I started to realize like, and, you know, there's statistics on if you are raised by, you know, an alcoholic mother or father, or you live in that household, the environment puts you at a higher risk. Same thing with like a, getting into abusive relationships or you look at disorders like borderline personality disorder. A lot of those people had traumatic childhoods. But anyways, what I'm getting at is I'm curious your thought when it comes to the stigma, I think about how, how we're this species that just really wants control, right? We want to believe that we're in control. So do you think that part of the stigma is people not wanting to admit that there are factors outside of our control. Because if they admit that, now it means that it could happen to me. I can develop bipolar or schizophrenia or, you know, whatever. Like, I'm curious if you've kind of seen that. What are your thoughts around that? Well, when you use the word species, um, do you mean humans or Americans? <laughs> I guess Americans, but if you want to break that down a little bit, well, I'd love to because know. Because lots of other societies in the world don't have this kind of a uh, preoccupation with the individual being responsible, mm. for, right? Uh, and so, you know, I tell the story of uh, hunter-gatherers living in Namibia um, where somebody hears voices um, that are very um, upsetting and angry and dangerous voices, but it's not his fault. It is a, it, there is a supernatural causing. Mm. And society takes the blame for that. We did something wrong as a society. And mm-hmm. it randomly, these, these spirits randomly settled in him and he's a victim. Uh, he didn't actually do anything wrong. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that I should point out, uh, in addition to the focus on the individual, the always being, you know, accountable for successes and failures and so on, is that we, we also have tended to view emotional disorders. Uh, psychiatric disorders is somehow more the responsibility of the person than biological conditions. We're much Hmm. more, I think in the United States, likely to attribute ADHD or autism to cheats or depression, to chance experiences or whatever, chance genetics, whatever. Um, uh, I think that, um, you know, we are, um, coming into a time in research in psychology, psychiatry, neurobiology, where we're, we're starting to appreciate 
just how much of a fallacy that body-mind distinction is. And epigenetics is really the way that that is, is happening. And so yeah. some of the interesting research on epigenetics, which is, of course, the study of how genes kind of turn on and turn off. Yeah. doesn't have to do whether you necessarily have this gene or don't have this gene, but which genes are, are operative. And the epigenetics is showing that it, it kind of is, is bogus to even separate the two. Let me just give you an example. Chimps and humans were 99.9 whatever percent identical genetically. Yeah. And the only genes we've found that are different are genes that have to do with jaw size and arm length. <laughs> Not things like intelligence, cognition, creativity. And so the differences are likely to be epigenetic, which of oh, those genes are turned on and off and off in, in, in chimps and so on. Yeah. But now, when it comes to, say, depression, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and so on, uh, geneticists are beginning to understand that alterations in the body during one's lifetime can affect the epigenetics of a person, mm -hmm. regulation of genes. And those can be passed on to children. Mm. So if you were the child of somebody who lived through a famine or a genocide or terrible adverse childhood circumstances, you may be predisposed to also experience similar emotional problems. Mm -hmm. In that sense, it makes no it's not logical at all to say that, that the person who's the progeny um, has a biological condition or a psychiatric condition. It's both of those together, right? Yeah. I mean, we all learned in school that Darwin was right, Lamarck was wrong, right? Lamarck said, you can't inherit or pass on to your progeny things that happen to you in life. If I yeah. lost in today in a factory accident mm. and I have a child, my child's still going to be born with two hands. Right. Yeah. But Lamarck was sort of right in the, to the extent that the things that happen to us alter our um, genetic regulation and that can be passed on. And it's a good example of why we can't say that something is biological or something is mental. Yeah. And if we can get rid of that binary, I think we'll go a long way to also reducing the stigma of mental illness. Yeah, Roy, let, let me tell you, like, I'm glad that you brought up epigenetics because when I learned about that, it just blew my brain up because, you know, uh, I would look around, I would, you know, because I, I, I'm just curious, that's why I read so much. And one of the things I couldn't figure out an answer for is how are people fine or normal, right, <laughs> for so long and then they're not? You know, and I started learning about epigenetics and, you know, uh, even studies with twins, right? And how our experiences can activate a gene. Like how, why is a soldier totally fine in life, comes back from war and he can't control his drinking? You know what I mean? There's so many things that are outside of our control, but yeah, I've, I've, uh, read, um, about studies from like, uh, uh, like descendants of Holocaust survivors, for example, and that trauma can be passed along. Right. And there's like heightened, uh, anxiety because they're on alert because their grandma or mother was traumatized. You know what I mean? And, and I, I guess this, this perfectly transitions. Like, I would love to know your thoughts because last year I really got into, uh, trying to understand issues with capitalism and if there's other kind of solutions, but since we're talking about this kind of like idea that people have that 
you know, we're, we're in control of this and this kind of individualistic idea and, you know, how you, you covered some history in the book, but like, how, how does capitalism play a role in, in this idea? Well, one of the things that I say in Nobody's Normal is that every society has some way to stigmatize something, right? Mm -hmm. Every society always finds some way to negatively value some kind of person in their society. And that person that they stigmatize is usually the person who doesn't fit the ideals of mm -hmm. that person. So then it makes sense to say, well, what are our ideals? And our ideals come out of a particular history of capitalism. And so capitalism didn't create the stigma of mental illness, mm. but it provided the conditions for us to stigmatize it in a particular kind of way. And so where we see this division of the, the, the diseases of the body being no fault of yours, the diseases of the mind being somehow that you're a bad person or, you know, you should be ashamed or keep or it's an embarrassment that comes out of this body mind distinction that emerges in capitalism mm -hmm. where people who did not produce, um, who did not fit the ideals were separated out. The very first asylums in France and England were not populated by people who were arrested by the government. They were families who brought these people in and mm -hmm. said, they're useless on the farm, you know, or yeah. they're, 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 they're not doing their job and we have to produce and yeah. we to, to, and they are a burden on us. And, and really that's, that's how the stigma of mental illness arises. Obviously I'm simplifying mm -hmm. history for the scope of this podcast, but we need to understand that I'm not saying capitalism's bad. I'm just saying that we all, we live in a capitalist society and we have a capitalist history. And so mm -hmm. that becomes a mechanism through which we are going to value or devalue certain kinds of people. Mm -hmm. The mechanism will be different in another society that's not, um, yeah. doesn't have this particular history. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Like this, this whole topic, it gets me, starts to get me all riled up, uh, <laughs> because yeah, the, I, the interesting case in Japan, you know, where before the, um, early 1900s. Uh, when people experienced, uh, severe depression or anxiety, um, they were seen to be, um, not just suffering from the hardships of life, mm -hmm. uh, but that they were, um, suffering in a way that proved that they could live through suffering, that they, they could endure, that they could persevere. Mm -hmm. And there was almost a, a kind of positive value associated with great mental suffering. And we hmm. see that, you know, I saw that in the United States in the early 20th century too, with the concept of neurasthenia, where great artists and great writers, yeah. you know, they were depressed and anxious and so on because they were, were thinking so hard because they were thinking so much and, and it, they were enduring the, 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 the great difficulties of mentation. And then these biological uh, works get introduced into Japan, uh, translated into Japanese or just read in English or German if people could, and which said that uh, mental illnesses are biological. And all of a sudden, mental illnesses in Japan are a sign of shame, not yeah. a sign of strong personality. Yeah. And now we're seeing that shift again 
where people are saying, no, the salary man, you know, the person who's caring for their aging parents, because parents just live and live and live and live and won't die. Um, that stress is causing people mm. hardship. And so if you see a person who is experiencing homelessness in Japan, you used to think that was a crazy person. But now that is a person who you think has suffered from the stresses of uh, entrance exams to the university or taking care of elderly parents or has been mm. fighting or is suffering from some kind of other financial hardship. Um, when society takes part of the blame, stigma decreases. Mm. Society takes the blame for the hardships, then you're not as much to blame. Yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting, you know, because uh, when I share my story or people find out, you know, a little bit about me, you know, it can, it can be glorified. But at the same time, I'm worried that it'll be like, well, if he can do it, anybody can do it. Like, well, I want to give people hope. Right. But when I first got when I first got sober, I, I got hooked on this idea of meritocracy. Right. Like I put in the work. I did this. Da, 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 right. Uh, later this week, I'm talking uh, with uh, the economist Robert Frank about his book, Success and Luck. And books like his opened my eyes to realize, like my mom getting sober at 20 was a huge advantage that I had. Right. Not only that, but she's a psychologist and a clinical director at a treatment center. She was sober seven years like like that right there in itself, those just that is extremely lucky that I had nothing to do with. But anyways, uh, you know, leading back, like circling back to like the, the this capitalist idea and that we're in control and we could persevere and all these things. One of the reasons it it upsets me is because these things go together where we're you talk about this in the book where we're basing someone's worth on what they can produce economically, right? And that, like, I, it's hard for me to grasp just people on the left or right, just anybody thinking that that's okay. My girlfriend, for example, she's in her, her master's program right now for social work. And she did this whole paper on sub-minimum wage, which I didn't even know was a thing, right? Like here in Las Vegas, we have a, like a place called Opportunity Village where they have people you know, uh, who work there, who have different uh, mental disabilities and things like that. And they're not legally required to pay them minimum wage. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? You know, so paying people based on their worth or saying who is or isn't value. And because that productivity is tied in with like kind of our morality and this is a good person, you're a hard worker. And there's so many things that are completely outside of our control. So I, you know, I'm curious because I'm sure you've thought about this or talked with it, you know, you teach about it or something, but like, I, I, I wonder, like, is there anything that you've thought of or seen in potential policies that might be able to kind of repair capitalism so it's not so focused on productivity and tying that into someone's worth to a society? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you, know, you know, it's interesting. The World Health Organization did longitudinal studies over mm. more than 20 years of outcomes of people with schizophrenia in a whole number of different countries and cities. And they found that the best outcomes, meaning, you know, people had jobs or married or, or their, their psychoses were less frequent or less severe when they did have them, was in um, non-Western rural agrarian communities. I like hmm. rural India, rural Nigeria. Yeah. And nobody really knows why that's the case. Huh. But the kind of received view 
even if we don't know 100% why, is that there are greater social supports in those settings. And so does it, you don't have to bring in all the money to support a family. You can do something. Can yeah. Do, right. And so, um, when we can, so, so when we can value what people want to do and can do and what makes them happy, rather than value it in monetary terms, we will not only see a decline in the stigma of mental illness, mm -hmm. but we will also see perhaps an increase in volunteerism and people doing volunteer work. We'll see an increase in people um, doing work that uh, like will value um, someone who's a stay-at-home parent mm -hmm. you know, rather than, and because in economic terms, the stay-at-home parent is, is practically disabled. Yeah. Right, they don't bring in any money, do they? Yeah. Um, the um, we we can value uh, somebody who wants to be an artist or a musician based on what they do, and rather than whether they ha actually can fully support themselves, because there are other people in a family to support them. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we have to all live in these nuclear households uh, just goes against that kind of reality. That depend that to be to be dependent is to be human. To mm -hmm. be independent is not to be human. Yeah. We evolved to be dependent on others. And so I tell the story in Nobody's Normal of a woman who was just very upset that her daughter, who's got autism and an intellectual disability, bags groceries. She hates it. It's shameful. It's low status, low sure. pay, uh, wants the daughter to do something else. But the daughter loves bagging groceries. She loves it. She likes the regularity of the customers who come back. She likes the fact that she's good at it and yeah. can do it without breaking things. And she knows how to pack it up. She, she loves it. What's wrong with that? Right? Yeah. What's wrong with that? But the guy, can we take, can we change that and then take that and generalize it to society as well so that we're not idealizing that hedge, the, you know, the rich hedge fund, hedge fund manager yeah. and uh, you know, and treating somebody who's a, a, a kindergarten teacher as if they're somehow love lower status. It's just, yeah. it's just absurd. You don't see that everywhere else in the world. Yeah. I, I, I think about that a lot. Uh, just the, the halo effect of it all, right. Where if somebody's making money, we believe, okay, now they're, they're a good person and, or they're smart or whatever. And we neglect any luck that happened in their life or any mistakes they make or bad decisions or how morally bankrupt they might be. We're just like, oh, well, they're up here in status. So they must be, you know, a good person, but, you know, just as a father myself, like something that, you know, uh, as you were telling that story, I'm like, yeah, I just want him to be happy. Right. I want him to be happy. Like, yeah, we have bills to pay and all these other things. But, you know, I made, for example, like the biggest lesson I learned and which had me kind of just switching my view on, you know, monetary stuff is I made more money than I've ever made while I was in my active addiction. I was the most miserable I've ever been. Right. So, uh, you know, that was a great lesson for me that money doesn't always equate happiness. Right. So, you know, I'm in a smaller place, but I, I have an amazing job where it's flexible. I get to do interviews with awesome authors and people doing cool stuff like, you, you know, and I'm way happier. So I want that for my son. But yeah, I, I do think, and I'm curious your thoughts as a parent and as somebody, you know, who works with just others in the next generation, like, do you think the conversations start with us in our households about 
what we value and like, do you think there's, you know, uh, too much pressure on kids to go to an expensive school and get a great job? Like, you know, what are your thoughts? Oh, well, it definitely things start in the household, you know, mm. um, but the things also start in society because the household is only one place, you know, mm. our, our kids are in our homes for a few hours a day, but they're at school and out and watching television and they're, they're getting lots and lots of messages from other places. And one of the things that I think is, is incredibly important in this kind of conversation is um, uh, people like you who talk about your struggles with addiction um, and celebrities uh, who people follow, you know, in the newspaper and on, on Twitter. And we're seeing people more and more come out and, and show us that wealth, status, fame, None of those things immunizes anybody from mental illness. Mm -hmm. And the more people come out and talk about their experiences, the more it, you know, at the risk of undercutting my book title, uh, it <laughs> normalizes mental illness, right? You know, or to say, yeah, hey, nobody's normal, not even Demi Lovato or not even Bruce Springsteen or not even, you know, whoever it might be. Yeah. Um, there's a story I tell in the book about uh, a, an attempt to get doctors to destigmatize mental illness in Nepal. Doctors didn't want to touch people with mental illnesses. They yeah. just thought, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, you're talking about primary care physicians, since there really are not many psychiatrists to speak of in Nepal. Um, but this one um, guy, a psychiatrist and anthropologist, Brandon Cord, did a uh, a training where he compared the World Health Organization's training to decrease stigma with the World Health, another group of people who he gave that same training, but added people who had um, been successfully cared for for their serious mental illnesses. Maybe hmm. somebody who had been addicted to something who's no longer. Maybe someone who had had depression is no longer depressed. And they found that the World Health Organization anti-stigma training actually did nothing. Didn't yeah. But when you pair that anti-stigma training with people like you who came out and said, yeah, I had this and I got care or I was treated or I'm better now, then there were very significant measures of decreased stigma mm. where the doctor said, oh yeah, I see I can actually interact or treat this person. I don't have to be scared of them. That's interesting. So whether we're in rural Nepal, or whether you're watching entertainment tonight and looking at some celebrity, uh, when you hear people be open and not buy into the shame and secretiveness uh, that we are often um, told uh, to obey, mm -hmm. uh, we see things get much better. And I just, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a real optimist. I think yeah. I'm much, much better. I, I just feel like I feel like mental health is having its moment somehow. Yeah, We're really starting to make progress. Yeah, and that 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 leads me perfectly into something else I wanted to ask you about in your thoughts. Um, so, you know, uh, when when I look back and just kind of tried to, you know, dissect myself and figure out what what happened to me, right? We never talked about you know mental health or anything when I was growing up, not in my household, even though I had an alcoholic mom. Like we just didn't talk about it uh in school 
most of us are required to take health classes. It's all physical health, nothing about mental health. We want to talk, you know, every once in a while they'll talk about suicide or, you know, whatever, but not just like depression or anxiety and all these other things. And when I was working in a treatment center, I used to ask people like, how many of you learned about mental health or just physical health? And most people from all over the country, because we had people coming in from all over, right? So anyways, when I got sober, the whole reason I started doing this and I started my YouTube channel, I was like, we don't talk about mental health enough, right? I, you know, that's something that happened to me. I don't want that to happen. I want to come out, share my story, but here's what I wanted to ask you. So, uh, as I mentioned before we hopped on, I had a conversation with Alan Francis. He has a, he has a book called saving normal, right? And he believes with the, you know, uh, the DSM five, we started over-diagnosing. And you talk a little bit about the medicalization of mental illness. And then we think about, uh, you know, because one of the arguments that um, uh, Alan makes is that, you know, Big Pharma, they want you to be, yeah, hey, you're depressed. Now take these antidepressants. That's how we make money. So I'm just curious your thoughts. Like, do you think we overcorrected in some instances? Do you think, you know, when we're talking about the more severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia or um, even even autism, right? If there's people who are on the, you know, uh, the the less severe end of the spectrum, if we're overdiagnosing, do you think that's taking away from some of the treatment and care that could be provided to to yeah, others? You know, when you look at the epidemiologic data um, from all over the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we can just pick the United States. Um, I'd say that most of the evidence uh, suggests that mental illnesses are underdiagnosed mm. and treated. And look at the suicide rate in the United States. Uh, look at the continued stigma associated mm -hmm. with substance abuse, schizophrenia, other conditions. So, so no, I don't buy into that. I mean, the DSM is not the perfect document. <laughs> and there are lots of terrible doctors out there and there are lots of terrible pharmaceutical uh, salespeople. Uh, but I just don't see the evidence that uh, mental illnesses are overdiagnosed and overtreated. In fact, the only evidence that, that I can see when, as I'm looking in literature is the opposite. Mm. You know, a diagnosis is necessary for treatment. You can't, you can't go get breast cancer treatment unless you've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Diagnoses provide frameworks. They're imperfect, but they provide frameworks for treatment. And that's why a diagnosis is important. Mm -hmm. And diagnoses can also be important for people for whom there is no treatment, because at least it helps you understand what's happening with you. So let's say you're 50 years old and all of a sudden you're diagnosed with autism. Well, there's no special education program for you yeah. uh, at the age of 50. Um, you're, you know, you've lived for 50 years. You know, what does that diagnosis do for you? Well, it may not give you any particular um, uh, benefit in the way that it would a school ch child, but it helps you to understand yourself and maybe to be less ashamed or say, wow, this is why I've had struggles with X or Y. This is why. Mm -hmm. It's not that I'm a deficient person is because I've got autism. And yeah. So diagnostic frameworks can be incredibly uh, therapeutic, just the framework itself, right? Yeah. And I know that Alan Francis, I've never met him, but I know it's his work and he's, he's very opinionated about the DSM. But, um, you know, most doctors don't diagnose using a DSM. 
Uh, they need that for insurance forms. Most doctors diagnose based on what's going to help. Mm -hmm. I have a quote in the book from Judy Rappaport, who's the former head of child psychiatry at the National Institute of Mental Health, who, you know, in her research, she, you know, she, she puts subjects in a particular protocol for a certain treatment based on whether they conform to the criteria in the DSM. But when it comes to actually treating somebody, mm. she doesn't use the DSM. She says, well, what's the best classroom for this kid? What's yeah. going to help this kid? And she said to me, look, I'll call a kid a zebra if it will get the kid into the classroom that is the most appropriate and beneficial to that child. Yeah, it's it's something I, I actually wrote about this the other day because because I get torn. Like I, I try to look at it and stuff like for for example, one thing like when I think about, you know, just children and ADHD there, uh, I always just think about this one kid I knew where severely neglected at home and trying to get attention and remembering his parents just ignoring that they never hang out with him and say, I think we need to take him and get diagnosed for ADHD and maybe give him some meds. I'm like, whoa. Let's take a look at what's actually going on. But anyways, so that's like on one side, but on the other side, my entire life, like growing up, I remember just being in high school and I, I couldn't understand, understand why is everybody so happy and I am miserable because I didn't start drinking or using drugs until end of my senior year. I was just dealing with this stuff. And like I said, we never talked about mental health issues. So I'm like, how are people so happy? What's going on, right? And my anxiety, right? Like I would be freaking out. Like people would get nervous, but I would be losing it, racing thoughts, rumination, just so many things. But anyways, when I stopped self-medicating with substances and I finally got diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder and, you know, some depression, it felt like a thousand pounds were lifted off my shoulders, right? Because I spent 27 years of my life thinking I was just insane. Something's wrong with me. I don't know what it is. Nobody gets this right. But when I was able to put a name on it, it's mm -hmm. like, okay, then I was able to research it. Then I was able to say, oh yeah, I know about that symptom. I, I get this symptom. And, and I, appreciate, I appreciate you putting, you know, putting those two views side by side, but yeah. I have to say that the preponderance of the evidence and the preponderance of, of stories in the world are more like your story. <laughs> Somebody who's somehow been harmed because they were taken to a doctor and diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, I mean, there is a lot of fear that somehow uh, therapists, social workers, psychiatrists, art therapists, whatever, somehow do harm. Uh, I know I'm not suggesting that there aren't people who do, you know, do harm. You can go to a podiatrist who does you harm. You, yeah. can, get, you can have a bad surgeon, right? But it reminds me of the world when in World War II, and I write a lot about wars. Yeah, and, I love that. Part. There's a, 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 a in World War II, there was a psychiatrist. I mean, there was a, a general uh, who I write about who really was angry that psychiatrists were being sent uh, abroad to treat soldiers traumatized by war and said, We don't want any psychiatrists coming over here to make our boys sick. Yeah. Right. Instead of caring for them, well, I guess you just send them back, you know, into combat. And I'm reminded of how many stories I've heard of parents who don't want their kids to get diagnoses and whatever it is because they're somehow afraid that, th that they'll become sick. But, you know, they're already 
suffering from something. Mm-hmm. But why do you increase their suffering? At the very beginning of Nobody's Normal, I talk about the woman in my class who said the best day of her freshman year was getting diagnosed with ADHD because for the first time somebody saw she wasn't lazy or stupid. And that's all she heard from her parents. Yeah. You're not working hard enough. Yeah. Not maybe you need to have a little bit of help. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think there's this, this fear that's often irrational that if you, if you give them the label, then people are just going to use that as this, this excuse, right? Like then you, if you medicate, they'll be, you have to take that medicine for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Zombie or something like that. I mean, we have those, those fears continue today. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we, we touched on it a, a minute ago. Yeah. There's, there's great doctors and terrible doctors. Like my drug of choice was prescription medications. I was hustling doctors for years. So I, I know that there are some out there, but like, uh, since when I, when I was 27 and got sober, I had congestive heart failure, right? I was dying and it, I had to rely on doctors. So I had to learn to get over those trust issues. And I found specific doctors who I could trust and have conversations with. But like you're talking about like that concern that you're going to be on the medication forever. I, about four, maybe four or five years ago, I found my current primary care doctor and that I, I wish I could clone her and give her to everybody, right? She sits with me. She talks with me. She knows that I'm in recovery. So she's mindful of what medications, but I was originally on Lexapro. I switched to Prozac a little bit later. She knows my overall goal is to hopefully not have to take, you know, uh, you know, Prozac for the rest of my life or whatever. But I talk with her and she helps me wean down. If something happens, if I fly into a fit of depression or my anxiety spikes up, we talk. We go back, you know what I mean? It's this relationship and we talk. So, so when, when people have these fears, I try to teach others that a lot of it's about your relationship with the right doctor or psychiatrist or whoever so it is. how the whole, a whole discipline can be somehow, <laughs> I mean, for lack of a better word, stigmatized. It's like, I, I think it's, um, uh, Lieberman, Dr. Lieberman of Columbia, who was giving a, a lecture not long ago. And he said, you know, there's such a strong anti-psychiatry movement. What's the anti-cardiology movement? Is there yeah. an anti-oncology movement? Is there an yeah. anti, you know, renal movement? There's yeah. somehow that aspect of medicine gets, uh, you know, gets tarred. And so one of the really positive things we're seeing is that more and more medical students are going to psychiatry. Mm. And it's a really dramatic increase. In fact, some people are calling psychiatry the new dermatology because really? dermatology is the most popular, you know, the hardest to get into because it's, it's pretty good lifestyle, mm-hmm. a lot of money. Uh, psychiatry is becoming more and more popular. There was a time in the United States during the 1960s when uh, up to 20% of medical students went into psychiatry. Mm. Um, it was considered at such a high status, um, an intellectual discipline of medicine. Uh, and then we got down to like, at some point, you know, don't quote me on these figures, but four or 5% by maybe the turn of the millennium. And mm. now we're up to six, seven, 8% of medical students going into psychiatry. So there is a change. Yeah. We'll turn uh, fighting the actual, the stigma itself of yeah. being a psychiatrist. 
Yeah. And that's, that's that kind of like, uh, you mentioned like kind of optimistic about it. You know what I mean? And more people, yeah. like I've mentioned, like my girlfriend, she's currently, uh, in her master's program for social work and, you know, uh, they're, you know, they're diving into a bunch of psychology stuff and some of her new courses. But anyways, like, yeah, uh, <laughs> funny story last year, uh, we, right before the pandemic, actually, we drove down to LA and we went to Scientology's museum. We of, could do that, but it's with the museum of, uh, death way yeah something like, museum of death I, I after this i'll i'll email you uh i did a video for my youtube channel of it and the experience there but yeah they just, have the uh air conditioning turned down to about 50 <laughs> i don't i if they did i didn't notice okay but it's a it's a wild experience the volume turned up way too loud on everything <laughs> oh yeah yeah it was it yeah. was yeah it was but it it's it's always interesting to me. I, I mentioned something about this on Twitter. Like the, their whole premise, their whole premise of their argument is, look, psychiatry used to be kind of messed up and they didn't know what they were doing. So therefore now in 2021, they still don't. And I always, I always remind people like, you realize that they used to drain blood from people who thought it would cure everything, right? Like science progresses, you know, the whole medical field progresses and all that. So, so yeah, it's, it's this weird, balance and and like you you were mentioning like i was thinking of just this kind of blanket statement or stereotyping of a field or whatever it is like a lot of us just think way too black and white with this with this stuff and we need to realize there's you know there's there's good therapists there's bad therapists and i've had people who have you know when i'm talking to them they ask me what they should do i'm like hey might be good to go to therapy to work through some of this trauma or talk to somebody or whatever and they're like ah 10 years ago i went to a therapist terrible experience and i'm like listen, listen, that was one therapist. There's a lot of therapists, you know, just, just try another. And it's just convincing. I'm like, Hey, each one's going to be different. Yeah, it's going back. You know, sometimes people think about therapy as well. I have my friends to support me or I have my family to support me. But the thing about a, a trade professional, whether it's a social worker or anybody, you know, anybody who is in that profession, they're seeing people like you day in, day out. They have the experience of seeing those people. If you're going to go get heart surgery, you probably want to go to a heart surgeon who's done it before. Yeah. Right? Who's done a lot of these surgeries. Um, and that's what good therapists do too, is they rely on that experience to, um, to help you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm certainly, you know, not going to say, well, I, I'd like to find a cardiac surgeon and I'll be his first patient ever, <laughs> please. Yeah. So um, I think that, um, you know, what what is happening now is that we are also expanding the possibilities of what therapy is. Mm. So it's not just a psychiatrist or it's not just a psychologist. Um, even primary care physicians are, in fact, primary care physicians are the largest prescribers of antidepressants. Mm -hmm. psychiatrists themselves. So in yeah. a sense, psychiatry's become kind of mainstreamed into primary care. Yeah, no, uh, like I mentioned, you know, my primary care doctors who I go to and one of my friends, he recently, or about a year, year or two ago, he started seeing a psychiatrist and his experience compared to, he, he spends less time talking to a psychiatrist than I do with my primary care doctor. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So that's something to take into consideration. But, but really, I, I have a couple more questions for you. 
And when we're talking about this and the stigma, and we kind of touched on this a minute ago when going back to parents, right? Parents are afraid that like therapists or psychologists or psychiatrists is going to make their kids sick. Here's something that I've wondered about, and I'm wondering if you've come across this in research or just witnessing it. Here's what I wonder. Because of this idea of control that we were talking about, I wonder if parents don't want their kid to get diagnosed because then they'll think that they messed up as a parent, right? If my son's depressed, then I'd have to, then, then my brain might tell me that I didn't do something right. Why can't I make my son happy? Because for example, with an alcoholic mom, why can't I make my mom happy? Why can't I make her better? So I'm curious if you think there's any part of that where part of the reason parents don't get mental health treatment for their kids is because they'll feel some kind of responsibility or guilt. Well, I think this is true actually all over the world. Um, mm. I mean, I tell, I talk a lot in the book about South Korea, where if a child has a, a, a mental illness or a learning disability, it brings shame upon the, the whole family. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked about uh, that in relationship to, to other cultures as well. And, you know, when we're talking about other cultures, we should also talk about different historical periods because different historical periods are different cultures. And it wasn't that long ago in the 1940s where the father of child psychology, Eric Erickson, um, his wife had a baby who was born with Down syndrome. Mm. And, but the, it, it wasn't diagnosed. They didn't call it Down syndrome back then. They called it mongoloid idiot or mongoloid idiocy. And they sent this child away to an institution. And they came home and they told their children and their friends and their family the baby had died at birth. So they didn't even know they had a sibling. That is how shameful it was considered. And mm-hmm. his closest advisors, his closest friends, including uh, Benjamin Spock, the child baby doctor, and mm-hmm. Mark Reed and others said, it will tarnish your career if it's known that you have a mongoloid idiot son. And so um, it's just not that long ago, really, that... Mm-hmm. Um, what we think of as such an enlightened profession and even such an enlightened person. I mean, he was famous. He won the Pulitzer Prize. He was a Harvard, um, professor, um, couldn't handle the idea that he could have a child with a disability and that somehow people would look upon him, uh, with pity or with, with negative judgment. Yeah. And and that's, and I'm, I'm sure that still exists today that 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 reminds me uh it was was it uh the kennedy daughter back in when they were doing a lobotomy rosemary kennedy yes mm-hmm. yeah something something similar because the kennedys and all this and well what happened with rosemary kennedy is she this it wasn't revealed for a long time is that she she was a very kind of uh apparently irritable uh, uh teenager didn't really conform to the ideals of femininity. Mm. Um, she might've had a learning disability and they brought, um, Rosemary Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's sister to the university where I work, George Washington university for a lobotomy. Lobotomies were one mechanism to attempt to reinforce gender norms mid-century. And the operation went terribly wrong. Not surprisingly, it was a rather crude, blunt type of operation. And she spent the rest of her life, um, seriously um, uh, brain damaged, uh, in a, in a facility. Um, and that's a 
what people did back then. They brought them this, my, my, my child uh, is irritable. My child is mean. Mm-hmm. My child isn't learning right. Uh, operate on them, do something. And then I won't have to get them treated again. And I won't have to have any problems with them. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's, yeah. It, so I, I, I see how much better we've gotten, but we still, you know, obviously you wrote the book because we still have a ways to go. So my, my last question for you, Roy, is I guess, well, it's kind of a two-parter. Who are you hoping that this book gets in the hands of, right? Like, is it, is it parents, is it teachers, is it doctors, is it therapists, is it, I don't know, just the average person. And, and what do you hope that their main takeaway is once they finish the book? Well, the, the, the answer as an author is that I hope this book gets into everybody's hand. Yeah. <laughs> no matter who they are. <laughs> because everybody is uh, going to experience hardship. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, maybe it will be a diagnosable mental illness. I don't know. Um, 60% of people with a mental illness don't get treatment. So, um, so I want everybody to have the book. And I'm really pleased the book's being translated now into Chinese, Russian, Brazilian, Portuguese, Polish, Turkish, Japanese, Korean, um, you know, so that I can communicate with uh, a bigger audience. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing that I want them to get out of it is that we can change this, that stigmatizing mental illnesses is not something in our nature. It is something in our history. It is something in our culture. Mm-hmm. We created stigma. Then we also have the power to change it. Yeah. Starting to do. That's the message I want people to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. The empowering message that we can change it and we're doing it. And so let's stay the course. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love it so much. And yeah, I, I, I regularly recommend the book because I enjoyed it so much and especially learning the history and how it kind of started and you know usually i'm not a fan of like the war stuff and like learning about you know like i don't sit and watch the history channel i'm like oh this is interesting so i loved it but uh yeah roy for for everybody who wants to keep up with your work and when like the the translated versions of the book come out and all that where can people find you and keep up to date with what you're doing well uh you know i have my university website uh i have royrichardgrigger.com as a personal website i've got uh, uh twitter facebook uh, I'm not a huge Instagram user. <laughs> um, I know nothing about TikTok, uh, but the book will also, the book's available everywhere mm-hmm. uh, as an audio book, as an ebook. Uh, it's in hardcover, but I think it's only $17. So it's not mm-hmm. an expensive hardcover, but then it comes out in paperback in next April. Oh, which okay. Would be nice. Cause I think for course adoptions, I, I, you know, I just think it would be great for psychology classes um think of how many classes there are on if they still call it abnormal psychology yeah courses on mental illness in psychology departments is still called abnormal psychology i think the the book nobody's normal would fit nicely there yeah no it's it's interesting going back to my girlfriend like some of the stuff that she's learning or the textbooks they have i'm like this is kind of outdated a little bit you know so so yeah awesome I'll, I'll make sure to link all that stuff in the description below but it has been such a pleasure Roy we might have to do this again sometime when the paperback comes out because <laughs> right. I could talk to you Thank all you. day yeah no it's been a blast chatting with you loved it absolutely right.
All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Roy. I absolutely loved talking with him. Like sometimes I I don't know if I'm going to like click with the author and stuff like that. And surprisingly, a lot of the authors have been so, you know, personable and cool. Cause I think that we get in our mind that, oh man, someone who like sits down and writes a book, they might like, you know, be super like quiet and not like too talky, but I love having these conversations and Roy, like I could have honestly talked with him all day about this stuff. He, he's so knowledgeable and you could tell he's just passionate about this subject. And as many of you know, when I, you know, bring authors on here, when we talk about social issues, I love how Roy kind of sees, you know, the connection between this kind of capitalist society that we live in here in the United States and how that affects the stigma around mental illness. All right. So yeah, make sure you, you head down to the description, make sure you're following Roy and check out his book. Like not only do you learn about the history of mental health care, but you also learn about like how the stigma kind of developed. Right. And it's, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, in order to fight the stigma, we should know how it started, what are the factors and all that kind of stuff. So make sure you check out his book, Nobody's Normal. But yeah, uh, just a reminder, since we're talking about books, both of my books around addiction, addiction recovery, helping someone you know who might be struggling, uh, those books are Hope and Caught in the Crossfire. Both of those books are free until Monday, September 20th. And I'm doing this because it is National Recovery Month. So spread the word, let people know. I don't care how many free copies we get out there, but you know, there's there's so much I put in these books that I wish I knew about. Uh, you know, uh, when when trying to overcome my own addiction or even trying to help others. So yeah, especially in Caught in the Crossfire, there's you know uh, communication methods. Uh, there's also intervention strategies, and like I said, it's mainly to make sure that your mental health stays good if you have somebody in your life struggling with addiction. So yeah, spread the word. All this stuff is posted on my social media at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter. I also posted it to Facebook on the YouTube channel and all that. So share it with other people because a lot of people are suffering in silence. So you don't know who might see this when you share it out there. All right. But yeah, anyways, uh, a few ways that you can support the podcast um, is to, yeah, one of them is to spread the word about the podcast, share this episode. If you think this was a good conversation about the stigma around mental illness, or you think people might be interested in Roy's book, share this episode or any other episode that you like that really helps out a ton. Next, make sure you're following the podcast, whether you're on Apple, Spotify, follow it, subscribe, whatever it is. And if you're not listening to it on Apple, that's all right. Because the last thing you could do that really helps out is if you head over to Apple Podcasts. Even if you got an Android phone, if you're not listening on Apple, go to the Apple podcast website or download the app and leave a rating and leave a review. That helps out a ton. The algorithms love all this stuff because, yeah, the podcast has been growing like crazy. We just started back in May. We already have over 70 episodes because I love talking with people and I read an insane amount of books. I'm almost at 290 books for the year just so you know. Right? Anyway, it's growing like crazy, but all this stuff, sharing and following and rating and review that helps spread the word even more. All right. But some other ways to support the podcast are, uh, you know, uh, I've written five total books. So if you want to check out all the books I've written uh, down in the description, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com where you can see my other books around like mental health. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote about my experience being canceled. You can become a patron 
And just a reminder, there is that affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's affordable. It's a great service. And with the affiliate link, not only do you get awesome, affordable therapy, but a little bit comes back to help support the podcast and what I'm doing here. All right. But anyways, another huge thank you to Roy. I really hope you guys go out there and check out his book. And yeah, have an awesome rest of your day. And there will be another new episode tomorrow. Some of you heard me mention this in yesterday's episode. I'm going to start bringing people on uh, to talk about non-book related topics. So tomorrow I actually have another podcast uh, host coming on and he's really into like philosophy and we talk about some uh social issues and the culture wars and all that so i hope you guys enjoy it and yeah stay tuned to more episodes like that because i might even bring more authors back on to not talk specifically about their books but some of you know the the topics that they specialize in so stay tuned for that all right but yeah have a great rest of your day and i will see you next time